Carl, I've been reading your work for many years, and you are someone who's managed to incorporate so many different fields together. At this point, your free energy principle can be discussed in fields of mathematics, physics, biology. It seems you've managed to cross all these borders, and I think it's perfect for this show. One thing I want to start off with is when you think of the topic of the mind-body problem, you think of Rene Descartes, and he often said, I think, therefore I am. And you've now become synonymous with, I am, therefore I think. I mean, let's start off with that, because I think it's beautifully poetic, considering this podcast is called Mind-Body Solution. Yes, I, I do like that um, homage to uh, Descartes. Um, so the, the, the cheekiness of the reversal uh, is based upon the free energy principle um, read as a physicist. And effectively, this is a description, a principle that will be applied to anything that exists. Um, and the maths tells you that if something exists in a certain sense, um, then it can be read or interpreted as making inferences. So if you um, allow me to equate inferring with thinking, that means to exist is to infer. So if I am, therefore I think. So the, the, that's the genesis. It's one of those, um, Dan, that it's um, um, strange inversions. Uh, you know, uh, speaking to the slightly sort of deflationary aspect of the, of the free energy principle, you know, it's a slightly tautological aspect. I think at that point it would be a perfect opportunity to let's play with definitions. Let's talk about free energy principle, a Bayesian brain, and perhaps active inference. Let's play around with these definitions before we move to a formalism of the free energy principle. Right. Um, so they're all very closely related. Uh, so defining the free energy principle, first of all, what is it? It's just a principle of the kind that you would remember at school in physics, like Hamilton's principle of least action. Um, and as such, it is effectively a mathematical method. It's a method or a tool that you would apply to a particular situation. And when applied to things like you and me, or in fact, many other animate things and biotic things, um, one, gets an interpretation of the behavior of such things in terms of active inference. Um, the inference part is just a statement of sense-making and representation on the inside of the thing, uh, where the thing in question can be a person or a particle, it could be you or me. Um, and that sense-making speaks to making sense, representing, explaining, inferring, the causes of sensory impressions from everything else from the outside world mm -hmm. um, and the best or the most if you like uh, inclusive way of understanding that kind of inference and sense making when applied to the brain would be the bayesian brain hypothesis so the bayesian brain hypothesis is the notion that we can understand our sense making and to a certain extent, with one commits to neuronal process theories, the underlying neurophysiology and neuronal dynamics in terms of Bayesian belief updating, basically changing our physical, biophysical states via neural dynamics to 
represent probabilistic beliefs, Bayesian subpersonal beliefs, uh, probabilistic beliefs about the causes of sensations. So that's inference, inference um, loosely described under the Bayesian brain. Active inference is the simple move that you uh, acknowledge that the sensations upon which you're basing your inference are actively sampled. You are in charge of the data that is subtending your inference. And that sort of closes the loop between you as an inference machine, a statistical organ, or your brain at least as a statistical organ, um, and the world supplying that sensory evidence of those sensations. And that story, um, that sort of closing the loop, uh, an action perception kind of cycle, uh, a description of sentient behavior, um, appealing to the notions of active uh, sensing and active learning um, is one way of reading what comes out of the free energy principle. Mm-hmm. So that's in my mind how, how those things are, or those see, how you triangulate amongst those three notions. Mm. Uh, when, when we think about, I mean, obviously, as you said, they're all very linked. Um, when you think about the free energy principle, the formalism of it, do you think of energy minus entropy? And then you obviously go into different aspects, surprise, divergence. Then you discuss, obviously, your internal states, hidden states, action perception. Talk to us about how this formula actually works and how you because a lot of people have noticed when they question you about this theory, everyone comes from a specific field. So someone often tends to attack you from a psychological perspective. Someone tends to talk to you from a biological perspective. How do you navigate all these territories? And I think with that, I'd like to say that you're one of the few people that I've noticed who seems to be a genuine polymath in that regard, because you're always able to answer these questions succinctly with a lot of definitions and just beautifully. How do you manage to do this? I have a lot of naughty and inquisitive students, so you get used to, <laughs> to, to answering questions uh, after a while. Uh, but that, yeah, that is, again, very, very gracious of you to say that. Um, but it's not, it, I, I don't think it's um, my wisdom. Um, I think that ability to jump from um, different disciplines or just take different perspective or views on what is probably the most important thing to all of us, which is how do we work and why are we here, um, is the gift of things like the free energy principle. And the free energy principle, I'm not claiming that, but you know, the free energy principle is just the current formulation of um, millennia of thinking and physics and psychology and philosophy, um, and probably nearly every other field, including behaviorism, economics, and, and the like. So the whole point of the free energy principle is that it is um, there to try and unify and to try and uh, encompass and thereby endorse all the various perspectives you could take upon sentient behavior or choice, uh, the uh, the imperatives that underwrite our decisions, um, you know, right through where do I look next in the next few hundred milliseconds through to, you know, which school should I send my children to? Um, so the, the, the eclectic aspect that is brought to the table by the free energy principle is just due to its fundamental nature. It's, it's a first principle account. And by definition, if it is a first principle account, if it is applicable, then it should be applicable widely to various phenomena read f- 
or looked at through the lens of an economist or a psychologist or a physicist or a, or a philosopher. Um, that that it's interesting you say. Oh, I talk about um, things like surprise information theory and uh, entropy and um, um, intrinsic value. Didn't actually say that, but I do talk about that. Affordances and the 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 whole charm of having a first principle account that is sufficiently simple to write down mathematically is that you can see that the same mathematical quantities mean different things to different people, but they're all the same thing. So perhaps it, you know, just to give you a couple of examples of that, underneath all of this is just basically a description of the states that I exist in, those states that are characteristic of me. So how would I express that mathematically? Well, I could just write down the uh, a function of any particular state that reflected how characteristic it was of me. And that would be most commonly written down as a log probability of me being in this state. Now, any log probability is basically a potential. And if it's a potential, you can now read it in by analogy to thermodynamics. Um, that log probability of being in a particular state via me can also be read as a statistician, and you can call that moral evidence or in, uh, in statistics marginal likelihood. Um, if you're information theory, it would be called self-information, and the average of self-information is entropy. Um, if you were an economist, it would basically be the states that I aspire to. It would be a description of my attracting set, written as if you were... Uh, uh, a theorist dealing with random dynamical systems. Um, so now this same quantity now becomes a, an expression of um, utility or value. If you were um, E.T. James, you would call it a constraint on the imperative to maximize the entropy, uh, and so on and so forth. So the key thing is that everybody's talking about exactly the same thing. It's just that they've got different words from it. So, you know, the joy of um, sort of seeing that um, central quantity under the hood, being able to make sense to lots of different people just is the um, an expression of the explanatory scope of this kind of first principles account. So everybody's right. They've just been using different words. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. I think when people try to develop any theory or hypothesis, it's always very important to sort of realize that we don't exist in a vacuum. There's, there's so many different fields of study that are studying the same things, but just defining them differently, um, discussing them very differently, but they all come together at some point. And any good theory needs to be able to explain these various expertises as well. There needs to be some sort of a full explanatory um, version of all of these, and there shouldn't be a gap. And you managed to bring these all together. When you talk about hierarchical Bayesian inference, it plays a very central role in your work. And I remember when I was reading about this and doing computational psychiatry as part of the blocks during my masters, I remember coming across your work and thinking, this is so beautiful. This the way you've managed to sort of incorporate this into psychopathology is even more intriguing because I remember the first time I read about it and you spoke about posteriors and priors and the way it will dictate how someone experiences hallucinations, delusions, and just general differences in their field of vision, etc. 
How did that come to you at some point? At what point did you manage to realize that this theory has a very active role to play in mental health? Right. Well, the answer is another strange inversion, I'm afraid. <laughs> I started with, with the, um, I started as a psychiatrist um, and a what used to be called a sort of mathematical psychologist. Or I wanted to be a mathematical psychologist. And I think a clinical version of that is, is exactly as you say, a computational psychiatrist. That phrase introduced by uh, my friends uh, Reed Montague and Peter Diane. Um, has only been around for, for about half a decade. But now we're all computational psychiatrists. <laughs> so as a young man, I aspire to be a computational psychiatrist. So the free energy principle is the denouement of um, that formalization. But I, I think it's a really important point you, you bring to the table there. Um, um, and there, I think there are two moves you um, have to make to, to appreciate the potential applicability um, of things like the Bayesian brain and the free energy principle to the suffering of uh, patients that you might see in the outpatients. The first move is to have a physics of beliefs, a physics of inference, a physics of sense-making, if you like, a physics of basic sentience. Uh, that is inactive, so it has to be sentient behavior. So it's all about choices and decisions and how I move and indeed um, how I control my autonomic reflexes, You know, respond to my gut feelings and exert some sort of personal control over my physiology and internal milieu. Um, so that's the first thing that you have to have. You have to have a, a physics of sentience. You have to have a mathematics that connects the, uh, the foundations of our dynamics in a physical world to the world of beliefs and inference and sense-making and representation in this inactive sense. So that's the first thing. Then once you've done that, you can then say, well, okay, under what circumstances or what would it look like if this inference went awry, was in some sense not fit for purpose with a particular world or eco-niche or environment or dynamic interpersonal relationship that this person was having to infer and to learn and to actively navigate to deploy her active inference for example um, and then you get I think to computational psychiatry but that does depend upon um, committing to a view of all psychopathology as intrinsically some kind of false inference um, but it's a very natural view that if you just think about hallucinations and delusions for example I mean what are they they are effectively inferring something is there when it's not. So if you were a statistician, you'd say, oh, yes, that's a type one error. That's just bad inference because you've got something wrong with your standard error. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know that the standard error corresponds to the precision in, uh, say, predictive coding variants of uh, the Bayesian brain hypothesis, um, which itself then relates to synaptic gain and neuromodulation and certain reaction of certain drugs. Um, similarly, all neglect syndromes, um, or um, in the old days would have been called um, dissociative or hysterical syndromes, um, you know, again, read as false inference would simply mean I'm inferring something is not there when it is. It's a type two error. Um, and if, if you think about all the different disorders and ways of 
suffering uh, that people present with in psychiatry and indeed quite a lot of neurology as well, they can all be cast as some kind of false inference, you know, um, dysmorphophobias, um, say in anorexia nervosa, having you know, false inferences about my body. Um, and even simple things like uh, parking, not simple, but awful things, um, um, but uh, you know, simple in the sense that they're more motor and neurologically oriented. Um, conditions like Parkinson's disease, you could think of as a failure to infer and to realize my inferred intentions that I am now about to move. So you were made tumors. First of all, we've linked physics to belief updating and inference. And then we've taken um, psychiatry as instances of a kind of aberrance or a kind of failure of that inference and belief updating process. But I repeat, put it in an inactive context. So, you, know, you couldn't explain Parkinson's disease unless you talked about um, planning as inference, you know, treating movement and uh, an active engagement with the world as the realization of inferred plans, things that I am likely to do next in, in this moment, or indeed, again, choosing which school to send my children to. <laughs> I, I still remember there was one specific line that I quoted from one of your papers. I can't remember the name of the paper, but you actually spoke about that phenomenon where someone who's acutely psychotic, schizophrenic, when you look at these patients and you show them visual illusions, you're able, they're able for some reason to see the reality of the situation, whereas we fall for this trick. So in those cases, people often say that they're seeing the real reality, the veridical truth, and we're not. Talk to me about this phenomenon, because I think it's quite intriguing that they don't fall for it. But you, with the free energy principle, with your theory, you're able to explain this. Or with the yeah. brain as well. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a fascinating area. So the, mm. um, there are rare instances where um, psychopathology or any uh, pathology um, um, can actually improve certain performance. Um, of course, one has to qualify what one means by improved performance. But the particular example you're talking about, I think, is absolutely fascinating. And it's a resistance um, characteristically shown with certain people, either people on the spectrum or people with schizophrenia uh, or schizotypal um, um, approaches to life, um, that renders them uniquely resistant to the kind of illusions that we all experience. Um, and it's just worth noting, well, what's an illusion? Well, it's a false inference, but why is it false? It's perfectly good from the point of view of a person having the, the inference and having the uh, presumed percept and qualitative experience. Uh, however, the experimenter, the, you know, the, the, the naughty experimenter who's deliberately crafted this stimulus in a way which is so unlikely that they can now say, no, no, this is a false percept because I know how it was caused. And the subject, I, for example, have completely the wrong idea, the wrong inference about how it was caused. So it is a wonderful tool for people in psychophysics to actually test how our inferences can fail in relation to the actual causes of our sensations. But to put that another way around, what it does, it's a beautiful probe of the prior beliefs that we bring to the table. So that, you know, going back to the notion of the Bayesian brain, read simply, that means that we have 
um, at hand a number of hypotheses that can explain the causes of this pattern of sensory or, for example, visual information. And we generate these hypotheses actively, say predictions in predictive coding, and then we look at the adequacy of these predictions in um, explaining the sensory data. So we're effectively little scientists. We are testing hypotheses against sensory data, and if they're not good hypotheses, we will reject them and, um, uh, and revise our hypotheses. And this is the Bayesian belief updating that we were referring to uh, previously. But the, um, that, um, that adjudication and that updating rests upon your prior beliefs before you see some sensory data um, relative to the precision of those data that are going to move your prior beliefs to make them into posterior beliefs after seeing the data. So we come back again to this notion, uh, and a key notion of the precision afforded your prior beliefs, the way that you think the world works, or the way that these particular uh, sensory uh, uh, patterns of sensory stimulation are generated relative to the evidence at hand through that you're accessing through your sensations. So when people, well, certainly when people like me and you talk about um, um, this resistance to illusions um, in people suffering from schizophrenia, what we are effectively saying is that they have less precise or imprecise prior beliefs, that they're more sensitive to any sensory evidence at hand. So if illusions are the things that reveal our prior beliefs, and people with schizophrenia are resistant to illusions, that means they don't have very precise prior beliefs. Mm. And that tells you an enormous amount about the, uh, the message passing, the dynamics and the sense-making in people who are resistant to illusions, um, particularly in relation to how we think the brain encodes that precision. Because you have to estimate the precision. It doesn't come for free. It's very much like a statistician computing the standard error which is the inverse or the complement of precision, it has to be evaluated. And if you get that wrong, you can produce your type one, your type two errors, all that false inference that underwrites hallucinations and delusions. And in this instance, um, a resistance to a particular kind of, um, not a pseudo hallucination, but a particular kind of, of illusory person. I, I think I'm glad we're touching on this because this leads me into my next question, which which is surrounding illusionism as a theory of consciousness. When you think of an illusion as a misinterpretation of a sensory stimulus that does exist, um, and you think of the theory of illusionism, Keith Frankish, Daniel Dennett, Susan Blackmore, lots of people working. And to an extent, when you take into account certain things that someone like Anil Seth says with perceptions being active hallucinations, um, you, you sort of come to this conclusion that, okay, the sensory stimulus we're receiving sort of gives us an idea, a posterior belief at some point, that we have what is known as a conscious experience, a phenomenal first-person subjective experience. Sorry, I'm going to head into philosophy at this point, and then we'll try and get back into <laughs> the neuroscience but, um, and the physics, etc. So when you think of Dennett and all these philosophers who discuss illusionism as a theory of conscious, the basic premise is that we, we are experiencing something. Uh, however, because let's say someone like you or Donald Hoffman who takes fitness payoffs over reality 
The fact is, we are never really perceiving what is actually out there. We're just perceiving what is meant to allow us to survive long enough, perhaps um, to breed, do whatever we have to do. And in this case, consciousness, believing we have some sort of an entity, something similar to an Ian Vitel. Um, the fact that we believe this allows us to go through life and successfully reproduce and continue to thrive. Do you think this has a lot of value? And do you think that these theories of illusionism as a theory of consciousness has value using your theory of free energy principle and the Bayesian brain to back it up? Well, in the way that you articulated them, absolutely, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you have any rebuttals against that? <laughs> <laughs> Not whatsoever. Um, no, I, I, I think you phrase that um, in a compelling uh, way, and um, it fits exactly with the view of uh, a, a Bayesian brain, and, and you know, more generally, the, uh, the free energy principle. Um, you know, controlled hallucination um, is just an expression of the way that sensory impressions somehow control our sense-making on the inside, and the degree to which we let them control depends upon the precision that we afford um, these sensory impressions. Um, by definition, we'll never actually know what's going on on the outside. So the whole point of inferring is you don't know the answer, you're just left with the best belief, the best probabilistic um, guess as to what's going on out there. There will never be any true access to the causes of that. Um, and in a you know sort of complementary fashion, I will never know what you are thinking. I can never know. So I'm on the outside looking at you. Um, so you know, all including the free energy principle, but um, as applied to your brain, this is just a hypothesis. It's just a belief. You know, there is a fundamental divide that in the physics application of the energy principle rests upon something called a Markov blanket. But there's a, a fundamental divide, an informational barrier, um, or probably you know, beyond information, an existential barrier uh, between the inside and the outside of any thinking thing, um, which means that the, the question is, that what is what is reality? Is there a metaphysics? Is, is unanswerable. Uh, uh, all you can do is, um, I think Neil Seth uh, expresses it as inference to the best prediction as opposed to explanation. Um, but I think inference to the best explanation is perfectly okay in terms of explaining the world to yourself as you um, sample it and as, as you sense it. Um, one can, um, so I'm not a philosopher, uh, so that's the, the, the one area that I, I am very naive in. Um, however, um, I did want to make a philosophical point here um, that we, you know, you use the phrase, uh, we believe uh, in some aspect of ourselves, um, um, including the fact that we believe that we have experiences. There is an argument that this is just another illusion. It's just another hypothesis. That, in fact, selfhood in and of itself is just another hypothesis. That these are sort of illusions that we bring to the table to make parsimonious sense of the fact that there is there appears to be some coherence in my embodied interaction with the world. Um, but it's not a necessary belief for living and, and surviving and adapting. And I'm sure if viruses could tell you, they would deny having a sense of self. Um, so I, I, yeah, one might argue that consciousness 
either the kind of self-consciousness that you referred to or just um, the notion that I am having a qualitative experience, you know, a, the kind of um, experience that uh, people like Thomas Metzinger would associate with op opacity or uh, phenomenal uh, opacity. Um, these in and of themselves are still just hypotheses. They're just ways of explaining my sense-making in this instance on the inside as opposed to explaining what caused my um, external sensory states. Does that make sense? But yeah. all of this, I think, is entirely consistent with you know with the views that you you, you expressed. Um, I think it, it's sorry. Will you continue, Cole? Well, no. You asked for a pushback. Um, yeah. The only pushback I, I can think of, um, and again, for, forgive me if I've, I'm using the wrong words, but. Um, the, part, the free energy principle inherits from um, the theory of sparsely coupled random dynamical systems um, and the special case that emerges when you have a particular kind of sparse coupling between something and everything else. Um, if that is true, it does have, if you like, a metaphysical commitment that there has to be something else out there. So um, there, there is there is a sense that you can um, you can be a complete skeptic, you, uh, and that there is no reality um, uh, from the point of view of applying the free energy principle um, to my sense making, or indeed applying it to your sense making, your sentience. Um, but uh, the free energy principle in and of itself starts from from a very metaphysical uh, mm. position that there is an out, outside and there is an inside um, and what we are looking at is quite simply a generalized synchronization between the dynamics on the inside and the outside that can be read as inference and belief updating mm. that's a good pushback i can think of i think i think that's exactly where someone like daniel dennett would break away from someone like donald hoffman exactly what you're talking about where dennett would suppose that there is a reality there is an external reality however there's still no such thing as phenomenal experience or conscious experiences because we are crafting this as we're going along or interpreting it that way. And that might not be the best way to say it anyway. Whereas Donald Hoffman then goes to the assumption that all conscious experience is the reality we're talking about. And, uh -huh. and that might take it a bit further because now there is no external reality. We're sort of creating reality from conscious experience. But yeah, he takes a different physical route. Uh, just call briefly what I wanted to say was, I mean, I've got tons of notes here. just want to show you There's a, lot, a lot of different things. I've got a bunch of equations here. The main goal was because I've seen so many different talks of yours and so many different interviews, I've noticed how people tend to, as I said, to ask you questions based on their expertise or their field of expertise. And I didn't want that to happen because for the most part, I, I'm so on board with your view and i love the theory so much i used it in my own master's dissertation to defend illusionism so i the dissertation is called psychiatry's defense for illusionism as a theory of consciousness and a huge chunk of that actually incorporated your work yourself call uh, chris frith and many others but i was worried that when i get into this interview i'm going to start defending it even more and i did not want that to happen so i made very specific notes to sidetrack me off off that path. But before I do leave that path, the last thing I do want to say is, if someone does ask you what consciousness is, how do you actually go about answering that question? Do you find that you go down a 
philosophical route or do you stick to a neuroscientific slash psychiatric route? Well, I think very much like you, um, it would depend upon who I'm talking to and who is listening. <laughs> so, uh, it would be very context sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> there are, you know, if you're talking um, to people who are um, in a more physics-y um, world and they they are interested in the in the naturalization of consciousness, I would appeal to this. Um, well, go right back to the you know, uh, Cartesian dualism. How do you repair that, or should you repair that? You know, the, there is actually an argument uh, I've heard recently from very valued colleagues um, that there is a neo-Cartesian Cartesianism um, that emerges from specifically uh, the free energy principle on the one hand and quantum information theoretic formulations on the other hand. Um, this is due to things like the inner screen hypothesis by Chris Fields, which is a, mm. you know, a fascinating resurrection of the, the Cartesian theater of a particular sort. Um, but if I was talking to, to, to somebody who wanted to naturalize, um, naturalize in relation to the laws of physics writ as um, usually differential equations or in quantum information theoretic terms, I would be looking to answer their question in terms of how how do you how do you bridge these two um, the you know how do you arrive at some kind of dual aspect monism um, that still preserved the duality but explained it um, and I would be talking about um, the difference between a posterior belief a Bayesian belief that is encoded by the states of a brain for example and the probability distributions that are entailed by the states of those brains so you've got on the one hand um, an intrinsic information geometry that inherits from the probability distributions that somebody in thermodynamics as a physicist uh, would understand the kind that we use in brain imaging for example to look at brain activations through um, the expenditure of thermodynamic energy in order to do neuro, you know, to support neural dynamics, but exactly the same biophysical states are those that parameterize another kind of information geometry, which is the information geometry of beliefs, the space in which I do my belief updating, moving one belief from this point to this point. And of course, that movement is important because most of the um, much of the arguments that I would engage with in terms of consciousness would um, frame consciousness as a process. Uh, I think you, you mentioned that explicitly. What does that mean from the point of view of trying to naturalize a conscious process that was uh, quintessentially belief-based? It's this movement on some statistical manifold. So you do get that for free from the free energy principle. So it's, you know, that's why I and a number of uh, at least close friends and collaborators uh, use the phrase, you know, uh, a physics of sentience. Sometimes if you don't want to be quite so bold, um, sometimes you get told off for using the word sentience. So, but at least you can talk about a physics of information. Um, and it is that sort of link between the information theoretic, the belief, the statistical um, um, aspect of neural dynamics and the thermodynamics 
that underwrite that, which does, I think, provide that link between um, the, you know, the men's, well, the, you know, the Cartesian dual uh, dual aspects um, of um, of certain things like the brain. If I was talking to uh, um, people um, in philosophy who are more interested in, um, you know, phenomenology, I think you have to address some hard questions about, you know, what would be the necessary properties of a self-organizing, self-evidence, free energy minimizing system that could possibly support um, qualitative experience or um, qualia? Um, as, uh, and then you have to ask other questions about um, when would there be some self-awareness of this and um, you know, issues of self-modeling of the kind, again, um, addressed by people like uh, uh, Thomas Metzinger. Um, I, that, that, those kinds of um, conversations would, would take a slightly different route and it would focus on the phenology. And interestingly, when they come back to the, the precision we were talking about before, if you remember, we were uh, talking about um, having to estimate the precision, which means that you've got, um, well, for those kinds of systems or creatures or particles um, that have the capacity to estimate the precision of their implicit beliefs and the sensory evidence that is updating those beliefs, that the very act of uh, deploying those estimates of precision and inferring that precision becomes a kind of mental action. So now you've got a way of linking um, mental action, read as people like uh, Jakob uh, Linowski and, and, and Thomas Metzinger and, and, and that kind of philosophizing um, with the psychological reading of this mental action, which is just attention. It's just basically... Um, deploying or affording more attention to this level of representation in a hierarchical context or this um, um, sensory stream, thereby selecting that for belief updating, giving those sources of evidence privileged access to your um, deeper, higher level uh, belief updating. So you, now you've, you're in the world of building bridges between attention, mental action, and phenomenology, um, then you have to, then you start to talk to people who like to think about selfhood and self-modeling and self-awareness. Um, and you start to think about, well, you know, how do these things unpack in terms of the kind of generative models that are necessary to define model evidence, marginal likelihood, variational free energy, what kind of models would you need? And you normally get to you know, very, very deep models, uh, hierarchical models, where, where we normally we have in mind a sort of heterarchy or a, a centrifugal hierarchy. So you know, deeper is, is usually sort of more abstract and slower. Um, and um, you know, one normally starts to think about, well, what kind of depth would be required for, for me to have a sense of self? Well, first of all, I have to be an agent. To be an agent, I have to have a generative model um, that entertains the consequences of my action, otherwise I can't plan. So immediately we're talking about generative models entailed by certain creatures or people that um, escapes the moment simply now because I've got a generative model of the future. Unlike a thermostat or a virus, 
I've now got a very deep generative model of a particular sort, which goes into the future. It's future pointing, but crucially, it's my future. It's not your future or anything else. It's just my future. What will happen if I do that? So that makes me into an agent. So immediately you're talking about a very special class of, of um, um, self-organization, self-evidencing. Um, and then you have to ask the question, well, at what point do I recognize that it is me that is actually doing the planning? Um, and why? You know, you know, if you want to apply the free energy principle, you have to ask the question, well, what licenses this kind of deep generative modeling? Um, and that's a pressing question because the um, you know, I've used the phrase self-evidencing. I, I should just very quickly um, qualify that, which is a philosophical term, which I know nothing about in philosophy. But I do know that uh, Jacob Howey, my friend in uh, Melbourne, who's a philosopher, uh, thinks it's quite apt to use as a description of the, the, uh, the Bayesian brain minimizing its free energy. Because if you remember, the free energy is synonymous with technically a lower bound on surprise. Surprise is self-information, but it's also the negative um, model evidence or log model evidence. So as you're doing um, optimal inference, you are implicitly trying to maximize the evidence for your models of your lived world. So you're self-evidencing. Um, so the interesting twist here is that um, you can you can easily show, literally on the back of a, a matchbox, that the the log evidence is equal to accuracy minus complexity, which means that every move I make and every uh, aspect of my brain that um, is engendered during neurodevelopment or indeed evolution has to pay a price for every more accurate explanation, um, illusion, um, that, um, that, that, that it um, deploys. And that price is the complexity cost. So it means you're trying to minimize the complexity. So why on earth would, um, say, evolution equip you and me with this really deep generative model where I've got all this extra complexity that I can be in this state of mind or that state of mind, I can be anxious, I can be in love, I can be frightened, I can be embarrassed. Um, you know, why would it do that? Well, of course, if it provides a parsimonious explanation of my sense-making and my active engagement with the world, then um, it pays its way in terms of the, um, the, the increase in accuracy of the kind of things I can explain and engage with, um, pays its way or uh, over uh, um, compensates sufficiently for the increased complexity. And then you ask yourself, well, what kind of worlds would potentially um, justify this kind of modeling, this kind of very sophisticated, hierarchically deep modeling? Um, and usually one ends up, and now I'm talking to people in neuroethology and social neuroscience, you end up with, well, the only kind of worlds in which I need to infer I am me and I am in this dispositional state is in a world in which there are lots of other things that are exactly like me that have certain dispositional intentional states, states in relation to me. Otherwise, I don't need this. It would be, you know, I'd have an overly complicated model. So you argue yourself into a situation where this kind of consciousness 
can only be present or is only licensed under the free energy principle in a world full of conspecifics and creatures and usually in an uncultured eco-niche that depends upon lots of other people. So that now becomes a slightly relational aspect uh, to this kind of consciousness. So I've given you a... I haven't talked about the 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 inner screen hypothesis, but there is another quantum physics version of this. So there are lots of different stories you can tell depending upon uh, what people want to hear. Carl, you touched on so many different ones there. Uh, I love the last one because it reminds me of Chris Fritz's work, and and he loves to talk about this social and relational aspect of consciousness. Uh, you guys have written many papers together, and someone else you've written with is a colleague of mine from South Africa, a very good friend, Mark Solms. You guys have also written together, and I know Mark takes us down to a more basic level of of existence um, in terms of conscious experiences coming from more basic parts of the brain. Um, what got you guys to write together, and how did you guys sort of get together and do this these beautiful papers together? Right, well, I just mentioned both Chris and Mark in that. Um, so interestingly, um, when I, um, as a young psychiatrist, got into brain imaging, and it was at exactly at the same time that Chris was Chris Frith uh, came um, from basically clinical uh, psychology and neuropsychology as one of the world's um, and certainly the UK's experts in schizophrenia research. He came to join us at the MRC Psychotron Unit to do the very first brain imaging, positron emission tomography studies of people with schizophrenia. So we, you know, he's been my mentor and friend for, for, since the inception of my academic career. And, and he's still meant to be writing the last paragraph of, of the last paper that I'm trying to submit at the moment. Uh, Mark, uh, but um, there's an interesting connection and um, um, comparison between Mark and, and Chris. Mark, I, I met later in life uh, at international conferences and was very impressed with, uh, in those days, his encyclopedic and um, very embracing knowledge of Freudian ideas mm -hmm. um, in relation to psychoanalysis, but also neuropsychology. Um, so he's one of those polymaths um, who can transcend different fields. You know, he can, he can write volumes on Freud and yet uh, bring the most um, informative and puzzling neuropsychological cases to the fore to evince some very deep questions about you know, how we experience our world and you know, how that can be expressed via things like neuropsychoanalysis. So um, the, the interesting thing is that Chris really hates Freud, whereas Mark loves Freud, but they're both, they're both committed to understanding the brain. Uh, you know, as an organ, as a social organ. Uh, uh, but as you rightly say, um, Mark is much more on the sort of, you know, um, predicates his work on the neuropsychology and the neurobiology, um, whereas Chris is much more in terms of the didactic and the social uh, the social neuroscience aspects um, that, that underwrite, um, you know, sense-making where it matters. Um, uh, but both of them, at the end of the day, are, are trying to understand that, you know, the patients they saw as young men, and perhaps Mark is still seeing patients, I, I don't know. Um, so that, that's how I got involved. Uh, you know, Mark's ideas, you know, they, I think you're absolutely right. They, um, they are um, more grounded in the wetware mm. that, um, that would have this, um, that would endorse certain... Um, 
psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic, uh, psych, uh, neuro and neuropsychological and psychiatric readings. Um, and interestingly, he's happened upon um, exactly the same um, focus. So I suspect your computational psychiatry thesis <laughs> focused on. So you know, again, we come back to this key notion of precision and uncertainty. And of course, you know, if you want a, a you know to naturalize uh, psychopathology, it's all about beliefs. And if you want to, uh, what is definitive of a belief? Well, it has clearly. Uh, when thought of or when when read as a probability distribution, it has an attribute, an attribute of content in terms of the location parameters. But more importantly, it's got a, an attribute of uncertainty, of dispersion. Um, that's the whole point about a belief as opposed to a point estimate. So if we are creatures that deal in beliefs, then the, you know, the challenge that we uh, face is basically evaluating and knowing and representing our own uncertainty, either personally or subpersonally. Um, you know, uh, and indeed, um, you can see this throughout, say, in economics, you know, the markets have lost confidence. There's in, you know, things that matter are usually those, the confidence and the uncertainty that I, that I hold my beliefs with. Um, so that, that, that I, I keep using the word uncertainty because there's a lovely little phrase that Mark has celebrated in his uh, most recent book, the, you know, the Hidden Spring and subsequent sort of academic publications, which is this notion of felt uncertainty. So he thinks that feelings are all about the estimation of and deployment of precision mm. and uncertainty in exactly the same way that we ended up trying to naturalize um, the resistance to illusions in people with schizophrenia. It's all the same thing. So, so he puts a very heavy weight on that. Um, to the extent it gets very cross when people um, <laughs> become cortical centric, you know, they think it's all all in the frontal lobes. He's, no, he's, he's all, it's literally deep in the hierarchy, literally deep uh, uh, in, the, in the cells of origin of these really powerful neurotransmitter systems mm -hmm. that do the attentional game, they do the neuromodulation, they set the precision, they balance and coordinate our, our belief updating. And of course, that fits very comfortably with what we were talking about before, which is a mental action read as attention, being able to get some control over those um, dynamics and belief updating uh, processes, that basic mechanics um, that's going on inside our head. Mm -hmm. So, when, I mean, you guys, both of your papers, I remember you, you all sort of culminate and get together with this idea that this Bayesian brain, this, this is fundamental to what we do. When you think about perceptive experiences, we realize that at some point, my red sunset and your red sunset are not the same. Um, these are very two different experiences, both comprised of different neuro, neuro factors, different social factors, different experiences in the past. So even time plays a big role. This comes along well when you think of Markov blankets, because you think of these different internal states, um, different active states, perhaps for each person who's thinking. How do you find Markov blankets play? Well, let's first talk about how Markov blankets talk, play a central role in the free energy principle and how this sort of navigates across different areas from physics to chemistry to biology to psychology. Um, let's go to economics, etc. Right. I thought you were going to talk about um, synchronization across Markov blankets and communication. I, I was going to get to that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me. 
So, um, yeah, as you say, the, the Markov blanket plays a foundational role in the physics reading of the free energy principle, where you have to, before you can start to talk about anything, you have to be able to demarcate and define what you mean by something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first move is um, to individuate that thing from everything else. How do you do that? Well, you simply identify those states that intervene between everything else and the thing in question. They separate the internal states, dynamics, paths, narratives. Um, technically, um, you know, these would be states in a state space um, from the point of view of, say, um, um, a Langevin equation or um, some kind of statistical physics. Um, and the um, what transpires is that you, if you want to individuate the states internal to something from the states external to something, then one way of doing that, and one could argue the only way of doing that, is to demonstrate that they are conditionally independent. If you want to be able to separate, there has to be some kind of probabilistic separability. There has to be some kind of independence. But it's conditioned upon the Markov blanket. So what does that mean? Well, this basically means that um, you and I, or more specifically, your brain and my brain, um, are not closed systems. We are open systems, and our systems are open to our niche or our environment or our uh, heat bath, if you were um, a, um, a physicist. Um, but that kind of openness is um, the kind that preserves that conditional independence between me on the inside and everything else on the outside. And that's where the Markov blanket comes in. And then uh, you can, um, for most things, partition the Markov blanket into two sets of states, the active states and the sensory states. The semantics are rather obvious in the sense that it's just making a distinction between those states that mediate the exposure of the inside to the outside, so the the vicarious influences of the outside on the inside, and those would be the sensory states, and then to complete the circle, to induce the necessary kind of circular causality we need for the synchronization we're going to talk about, you have to have the other side of the street, um, which is the active states that mediate the influence of the internal states on the external states. So you've got this rather delicate uh, fundamental sparsity structure where the sparsity is read in terms of the influence that one state has on, on another state that foregrounds a special set of states that are called blanket states that can um, be divided into active and sensory states that intervene between the external and internal states. Um, the inner screen hypothesis we were talking about before inherits from a quantum information theoretic formulation of this notion where you can look at this blanket as a screen onto which I can write, say the environment or the world out there writes onto this blanket, writes onto this holographic screen, and those become my sensations, and I can then read those sensations from the holographic screen on the inside, and then I can couple back so that the environment senses me through my actions. So there's a, if you like, one level of perfect symmetry between the two. And that symmetry um, is just, um, sorry, that symmetry is evinced by 
um, the, the minimization um, of free energy in the sense that if I can predict what's going on out there and what's going on out there is at the same time in some sense trying to predict what's going on inside my head, the ultimate the free energy minimizing solution, the most likely solution, just brings us back to the, you know being in characteristic states for the environment and the me. So we're talking just about a description of a generalized synchronization or a synchronization of chaos um, between two sparsely coupled dynamical systems with a special sparsity structure that allows me to preserve my conditional independence. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, the... Uh, the um, the illusionist perspective we were talking about before is a must. It can't be any other way if you define existence as conditional independence from the world in which you are immersed. Um, but of course, there has to be a world in which you are immersed, so you can't take that too far in terms of a sceptical position. Yeah. When, when you think of Markov blankets, um, in the context of, let's say, neural networks, um, how, how could the concept of Markov blankets be used to uh, better understand flow of information or computations within a neural network. Is this applicable? And are there any specific applications we could utilize this concept to enhance our understanding of consciousness, neural connections, etc.? Yeah, I think I think there are. It's interesting that you should ask that. And um, what you should do is get. Um, Maxwell Ramsted and Chris Field, and possibly even Mark. I mean, Mark, not Mark Soames has also been involved in these conversations, and another other people I'm sure they will also suggest. Um, so this group have um, um, been thinking for a year or two and are currently submitting papers to things like the Journal of Consciousness Studies and elsewhere that rest explicitly on um, halving the internal dynamics of a brain in terms of nested Markov blankets and trying to ask the question, is there something unique about a Markov blanket on the inside in your brain, which you know, may be physically very distributed, uh, but statistically well-defined, that could possibly support consciousness? So this is the inner screen hypothesis that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So your question, you and perhaps you've actually seen a, seen a preprint. <laughs> No, I haven't. <laughs> uh, oh, well, it's a very, it's a very pressing to the astute question then, because this is exactly what people like Maxwell and Mark and Ken and uh, David and everybody else would, would love, Chris would have loved to have been asked. Um, yeah, so that's the whole premise that, 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 that well, first of all, let's just stand back. Um, so you're right to ask, you know, are Markov blankets useful? Um, yeah, I think I think that, that they are foundational and they're used implicitly every everywhere. I mean, not only are they foundational in the sense that they um, they define your existence and my existence and anything that we um, that we engage with or we think we engage with, um, but they are implicitly used uh, whenever you start to um, simulate or reproduce um, um, or emulate any kind of sense making or intelligence, artificial or natural. Um, you know, whether you're playing with neurons, neural cultures in a dish, you know, the cell membrane is a Markov blanket that you know, defines the cell. The connectivity of the neurons defines another scale of Markov blanket or a Markov blanket, another scale which says that this is a network. Uh, and exactly the same 
maths applies to neural networks in machine learning and artificial intelligence research and the operation of your iPhone or Google search machines. Um, so these things become practically really important in defining the network of a thing that's doing the um, the you know, the computations or the information processing in a pragmatic sense. And indeed, you can read these active and sensory states as the inputs and outputs to anything that is doing some kind of computing. Um, so they are, they are essential um, in defining things like, say, von Neumann architectures. You know, we do not, you, know, you and I don't use a von Neumann architecture, but you can still use Markov blankets to define them. But even if you look at the kind of uh, architectures um, that we use um, for sense making in the hierarchical Bayesian brain or hierarchical predictive coding um, story, then the message passing that is required to do the belief updating becomes tremendously efficient due to the presence of these um, carefully self-maintained, self-evidencing Markov blanket structures. So remember the Markov blanket rests upon a sparsity structure. It's what the connections and the influences that are not there. So that means that you can now do local computations if you can define the Markov blanket of you uh, you may be just an element of your dendrite, dendritic tree. You may be a synapse. You may be an entire dendritic tree. You may be a cell. You may be uh, a brain region. You may be the hippocampus. You may be an entire brain. You may be an entire person, or you may be a family. You may be a species. You may be an institution. You may be a biosphere. Yeah, at every, every scale, the same rules apply, um, whereby you get the efficiency from... Um, the sparsity, where the sparsity underwrites the very structure and the ability to actually dissect at every scale um, the system at hand. So that leads to, uh, I repeat, that's practically really important when you're designing neural networks or chips. You, you need to keep all your computations as local as possible, and you do that by using your Markov blanket. Um, if you wanted to, um, if we return to... Um, the implications for um, belief updating in a brain, um, then just saying the phrase hierarchical predictive processing or hierarchical Bayesian inference immediately commits you to a certain class of Markov blankets because the hierarchy is just defined in terms of the connections that are not there. Mm -hmm. So each hierarchical level possesses a Markov blanket that separates its superordinate level from its subordinate level. So just talking about hierarchical structures is just one special case of a particular kind of nested Markov blanket. Um, and then we get to, uh, is there a special Markov blanket? So now this is the crux of the paper that you haven't read, but I thought you had. <laughs> Which, I'm looking forward so, to it. <laughs> Well, I'll send you, well, I'll ask, you know, if you email Maxwell Ramsted in, okay. in Montreal, he'll send you. Um, he'll send you. I, I've only got a copy with all the authors redacted, uh, so I'm not quite sure who who the authors are. At the moment. Um, I'll, I'll take up that option. I'll take up that offer. I'll definitely do that. No, he'd be delighted. Um, so, so you know, the the idea of um, um, one of the key ideas um, that fits very comfortably with. Um, the ideas uh, from Chris Field and people like Jim Glazebrook and, and Mike Levin, um, which is this inner screen hypothesis, 
is that there is one irreducible Markov blanket. There is one that you can't get inside and find any hierarchical structure or any partition. So what would that mean if there was one or more possibly, but there was certainly at least one irreducible Markov blanket in my brain? It would have some quite profound implications. Um, it would mean that it could never see itself other than acting on the outside, which is the rest of the brain. So the only way you can self-evidence is by engaging in mental action. Mm. And now you ask, well, what kind of mental action would it engage? Uh, would it, uh, what are the executive systems, the active states of this particular minimal Markov blanket? They are precisely the cells of origin of the neurotransmitters that implement precision control and attention. So we're right back with Mark Soames again. <laughs> but we're in a very comfortable position because not only are we uh, friends with Mark Soames, um, but we're also friends with everybody who talks about things like higher-order thought theory. Yes. So predicate their entire argument on this hierarchical structure, which means that the, at some level, and usually it's the higher level or the deeper level, uh, do, do interesting <laughs> metacognitive uh, things start to happen that you could associate with uh, with conscious processing. But this is exactly what the minimal Markov blanket, uh, irreducible Markov blanket would say. It is something that is deep within a hierarchy that cannot, there is no higher or deeper level. Because if there was, you'd be able to partition the internal states within that minimal Markov blanket. It also fits very comfortably things like the global neuronal workspace theory. I mean, what is global um, and what is a workspace? Well, it's something where you can share stuff. Mm. So you can't mm. further subdivide it. And it's global because it sees everything. So it has it has a lot of construct validity in relation to, again, where we started. Everybody's right, but they've just got their own way of expressing it. Um, but in this instance, we are, or one is, expressing it explicitly in terms of individuation, separability, read through the lens of the free energy principle in terms of Markov blankets, crucially in a scale, uh, applied a particular scale, and this scale is the scale of brains. So this argument wouldn't work when you're trying to describe the weather or evolution. It wouldn't work when you're trying to describe things at a quantum level or indeed um, at the level of a um, you know, single neuron or neural population. This argument um, is scale um, is tied to a particular scale, but it has, if you like, a scale-free aspect in the hierarchical uh, in the hierarchical um, um, partitioning that induces the notion of a non-partitionable or irreducible Markov blanket. So, uh, funnily enough, that, that that notion of the irreducible Markov blanket being the inner screen is exactly the new Cartesian theatre that we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> That's very fascinating. I mean, I'm scheduled to chat to Mike Levin soon, and I had no idea. <laughs> uh, I think I should send him an email to chat about this. You said it was Mike Levin, Mark Solms, Chris Fields. Who else was there? There was one more name you mentioned. Uh, the, the, inner, the inner screen hypothesis that, um, if you like, provides um, a cornerstone for this more collective, inclusive effort to try and get at you know what uh, Vanya Weiss would call a, a minimize a, a minimal unifying model of consciousness okay. Okay. that includes people like Mark Soames and and, and Kenneth Wilford and Wilford and uh, David Rudolph and, and, and lots of people. Um, 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 
sort of organised by Maxwell Ramstead, um, and Chris Fields is, is, is a really important player in that. But the inner screen hypothesis in and of itself um, does indeed um, uh, is is indeed due to um, uh, Chris Fields and his friends, and particularly Mike Levin uh, and people like uh, Jim Glazebrook. So that 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 formulation is another, if you like, axis, which I, I you you'd have some great conversations with both Chris and Mike. Um, so they, they come at this from the point of view of um, sort of basal cognition, the notion that everything is effectively um, can be cast um, and possibly even is just a, a process of information. You know, it's this information processing and self-organization just is um, um, the, um, the processes that evolve that effectively do belief updating or process information usually classical information um you know when it comes to sort of the kind of biotic self-organization that mike levin deals with so he you know he's famous for xenobots yes. and all sorts of really insightful takes new takes on um cellular and um and um biological self-organization um you know, some of my favorite ideas are, you know, if you that you might like is that, you know, when when you appreciate that sort of, you know, um, physics, and this is a Chris Fields quote, um, there is no bright line between sort of physics, biology, and psychology. They're all the same thing, um, but just using different words. And, and, and Mike takes this to his extreme, or used to, he's, he's got more sophisticated uh, uh, in the past few years, but um, uh, several years ago, he had this notion that um, cancer was a uh, was a delusion, a delusion that arose from a pathology of basal cognition, which <laughs> I think is why you know, cells are failing to infer, know their place. They're failing to infer that no, I shouldn't be growing in this context. Uh, they got they got this delusion. Oh, I should keep on growing, uh, and of course, he's absolutely right. Uh, so you can even get a computational psychiatry of cancer out of this but it does require a commitment to think about all self-organization as basically a process that can be read as an inference process or a belief up basic dating process uh, the right kind of um, processing and um, 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 bounding self-information and, and entropy read from the point of view of information theory chris fields's particular take comes from uh his skills with Jim Glazebrook in quantum information theory. So that's that, that's where the information theoretic aspects come. And then you can start to talk about the relationship between the principles of unitarity and entanglement and the like, and what that means when read, um, or, or what it means in terms of um, a quantum formulation of the, a classical reading of the free energy principle. Um, that doesn't normally deal with quantum. You know, it usually starts with uh, you know classical mechanics, with all the other formulation and like. Um, I know. So, so I just I love so much about what you just said because we, when I talk about it, I often think about the same thing. I often call ourselves perceiving persons, organized by organelles, crafted by cells, designed by DNA, manufactured by molecules, assembled by atoms, forged by fusion over. Um, forged by fusion via stellar supernovae. So this is a saying because I think if you don't incorporate all these things together, you're just you're missing out an opportunity not to reduce things to their 
nothing but aspects, but rather to grow the complexity of what we're talking about. Um, you just increase the scope of the conversation so much more by discussing every realm of reality. Uh, and I think you get that, and you seem to be working on that from that perspective as well. Absolutely. Uh, that, 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 again, I think that's a, 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 you know, a lovely way that you actually expressed it. You should definitely get Chris Fields uh, on, on, on your podcast because his big thing is that scale freeness, that scale invariance. Um, that, you know, and in fact, I was on a call literally um, about two hours ago where he made, uh, I thought, a delightful point that uh, because the free energy principle is by construction scale free, it cannot be reductionist at the same time. So it is quintessentially anti-reductionist. So what you just expressed, I think, covered all those scales. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of the well, saying it has to the uh, it has your your formalism has to be scale free. It has to be deployed um, for me mathematically in the spirit of the renormalization group. It has to be deployed time and time and time again. Um, and as soon as you realise that. Then you start to answer the deep or ask deep questions about you know bottom-up and top-down causation between scales. So as soon as you've got a scale-free theory that can apply either to gamma oscillations in your hippocampus, or it can apply to natural selection read as Bayesian model selection, um, then you start to ask big questions. Well, how does this very slow self-evidencing process? contextualize and be informed by this very fast self-evidencing process or information processing in a way that is emergent from just having these same kinds of processes uh, unfolding uh, with, with a separation of, in this instance, temporal scales. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Chris would wax lyrical for a long time about <laughs> this. So you, you should, perhaps you can get Chris and Mike together. Then you, I think that's uh, a very good idea. I think I should start doing that. I know, I know the last time, I think you, Kurt, and Mike, I think spoke together as well. If I recall correctly, I can't remember. Yes. 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 Uh, Carl, I wanted to ask you, when, when you think about this project that everyone's talking about um, and Markov blankets, do you think that because some systems are so complex, how, do, you find, do you think there will be any sort of indirect or hidden causal relationships that might hinder this from happening? What, what sort of applications or techniques should be employed to effectively identify Markov blankets within complex systems? Ah, right. Um, yeah, that, uh, so this is a very sort of practical uh, mm. uh, issue, um, and it would be very nice to be able to sort of parcelate the brain, for example, or parcelate um, an institution or, a, you know, a, um, you know, an economy um, yeah. to be yeah. able to identify the, uh, the 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 different Markov blankets um, given some empirical data. Um, there is a worked example of this which is little known because it's just so complicated; uh, it's almost um, impossible to read. But I wrote it, and I'm quite <laughs> proud of it. Um, and it, it, I think it was in uh, Network Science, but it was exactly the challenge of taking brain imaging data with um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, measurements of activity over time, and then parcelating it at different scales. So it was exactly what we we're just talking about. It was creating Markov blankets and Markov blankets and Markov blankets, and doing it in a way that was empirically uh, constrained uh, by measuring the connectivity 
Mm. And it, you know, looking at its sparsity to imply where the Markov blankets were. And then once you've got a Markov blanket, those now constitute the internal states of a bigger Markov blanket. And then you can sort of carve up the entire brain at successively coarser and coarser um, spatial scales. Mm. Uh, and what was really interesting is a phenomena that um, is, if you, um, I was going to say emergent, but in fact, it's actually baked into the the you know, the, uh, the renormalization group that you would access mathematically, um, or you would use to access the scale-free behavior, or at least formalize or naturalize it. Um, uh, that things get slower as they get bigger. So you could actually we could actually estimate the time constants of the neuronal fluctuations and implicit belief updating associated with different spatial scales ranging from a cubic centimeter or millimeter or so of the brain through to entire frontal lobes. Mm -hmm. And then we can extrapolate out to very, very big things uh, and very, very small things. And look at the characteristic time scales. It was just implicit by scanning through the time scales by having lots and lots, you know, literally hundreds of thousands, uh, well, at least a thousand, uh, a, th a thousand little Markov blankets all jostling together, uh, partitioned, uh, and then moving to, say, a hundred of them, and then to ten. And it's by extrapolating, you can then think about sort of collections of brains, ten brains, or a tenth of a um, a cubic uh, centimetre of the brain, right the way down to, to, to the quantum scale. And it's looking at the different time constants that were, that were engaged. So that was a really interesting academic exercise, but did rest, as you say, in being able to identify uh, Markov blankets. Um, what you're asking, though, um, is, you know, is, is a key issue in terms of complex system um, analysis and modelling, uh, being able to carve the system in the right kind of way um, in order to... Um, usually to simulate it uh, in a way that allows you to do forecasting or scenario modeling and the like, or uh, projecting uh, a response to a therapeutic intervention in, uh, uh, say, uh, clinical neuroscience or psychiatry through to weather forecasting. You know, getting the right coarse graining, the right Markov blankets in play is absolutely essential. Uh, there are lots of people working on that at the moment. One email exchange I've had this week is from a gentleman called Jeff Beck, uh, who's taken on the very deep challenge of considering Markov blankets that wander around. Um, so one interesting aspect of um, a simple definition of a Markov blanket is that it depends upon um, a probability distribution um, that exists uh, over a non-trivial amount of time. But if you think of something like a candle flame um, that is moving, um, and furthermore, the constituents, the molecules and the ions that constitute the plasma that is the surface of the, the flame, is it fair to say that the, the flame has a Markov blanket, given all its constituent molecules, i.e. other small-scale Markov blankets are continually being exchanged and um, um, moving, wandering around. So he's taken on the challenge of, of taking Markov blankets into this sort of um, more liberal domain and dynamic domain and see if one can still apply the free energy principle in, in a practical way. But to do that, 
he has to have at least uh, simulations or numerical studies that allow him to actually identify Markov blankets that move like waves in certain uh, in certain media. So that's still, I think, an, an outstanding problem, which a lot of people, well, when I say a lot, a few key close colleagues are looking at. Uh, uh, and I think it's a very useful uh, avenue of inquiry. That's quite fascinating. It's, it's great to see that so many different people are working on this at this point, because when you look online and you look at the amount of citations, I mean, you are one of the most cited neuroscientists on the planet. And it's great to see that a lot of people are taking these concepts seriously and trying to roll with it. Uh, looking ahead to the future, what, what directions or advancements do you anticipate in the study of Markov blankets, for example, ex except for the one you just mentioned? And where do you think the free energy principle is going from here? Um, I, I think there are probably um, three directions of travel. Um, and we've implicit, we've already covered the most important ones in our conversation. Um, so, you know, the first um, uh, one is indeed computational psychiatry and computational uh, neurology. I mean, in a sense, all um, the work that Chris Frith and, uh, and I and many other colleagues put in, um, you know, decades ago into understanding functional brain architectures via brain imaging was in the service of you know, ultimately asking questions about neurology and psychiatry. And much of the theorizing that led to active inference and the free energy principle inherited from the data analytic and modeling that we were applying to, uh, uh, to make sense of brain imaging data. Uh, I realized that exactly the same principles could be applied to the brain. Or when I say realized, we're told by people like Jeffrey Hinton, you can apply exactly the same principles to, to, to the brain, the help helps machine. Um, so um, that's one that's one direction of travel, I think. It's, it's just, uh, again, I use the word naturalizing, and I recently le learned what it means. And, and I think it's a, you know, a useful phrase to, to naturalize psychopathology in a way that you can write down the laws and the maths and you can start to create in silico patients and digital twins and intervene on them uh, without actually um, you know, giving drugs or uh, psychotherapeutic interventions to patients until you've shown. Um, and to a certain extent, that, that style of approach is um, already starting to bite, not under, in the context of the free energy principle explicitly, but certainly um, in the modelling of things like epilepsy. You know, having 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 naturalized a pathophysiology, say you know the transmission of epileptic discharges and seizure activity in the brain, uh, to the extent you can actually put it in the computer and start to do weather forecasting of this particular person's brain and what might happen if we did this, this and that. I think that's one very exciting way forward. Uh, another complement of that um, um, sort of applied application of the free energy principle. Um, would be the ability to phenotype people. So there's a phrase computational phenotyping, which which I quite like, which basically means being able to characterize this person or this cohort um, in terms of the parameters of their generative models that they use to explain their world. And that provides a really powerful and efficient summary of this person and their, in terms of their beliefs and, and their belief updating and their prior commitments. Um, and being able to, to be able to measure and quantify somebody in that kind of way can be very, very useful. 
not only in terms of tracking responses to therapy, but also just getting the right nosologies, the right way of carving up um, uh, various psychiatric conditions and their etiologies, because now you've got a naturalized process theory under the hood. So that's one kind of thing. The other uh, direction of travel, I think, is uh, in artificial intelligence, um, just actually building. See, practically what the free energy principle brings to the table um, is not really a pretty um, first principles account of uh, existence and sentient behavior. Um, but um, practically another strange inversion, another indented strange inversion, um, instead of having to um, instead of having to understand the system in terms of its dynamics as you would with complex system modeling, um, you're trying to understand the underlying mechanics by saying, well, these dynamics, this set of, say, differential equations, looks as if it's performing a gradient flow on this Lyapunov function or this uh, um, uh, Lagrangian. Um, and I'm going to try and estimate what this, um, what this underlying potential function is that causes my dynamics. It's best a simple explanation for the complex system I want to understand. Um, for me, of course, that's always going to be this surprise or... or um, the uh, um, the um, log um, marginal likelihood or the free energy bounds on that. Um, but what you can do is, if you know that the, the dynamics of your complex system can always be expressed as a gradient flow on a free energy functional of a generative model, where the generative model just scores or articulates characteristic states of being that you want to... Um, you want to emulate, then what you can do is you can just write down the free energy functional of your preferred states of being and then just integrate the system to reproduce the sentient behavior that you would have seen if the thing existed and had these was attracted to these characteristic states. So it's a really powerful way of building machines that look as if they exist in a particular way. Uh, and of course, that's the aspiration of machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, um, in, in, so it, it, certainly in principle, you could deploy the free energy principle in the context of building artifacts that do the right kind of belief updating by the right kind. Of course, I mean, uh, being able to model their world where their world is basically the world of users, basically you and me, which brings us to the third direction of travel, which is... Um, the kind that Chris Fifth would like, which is, you know, the explicit acknowledgement that what is really interesting here is this scale-free application of the energy principle where you've got lots of different free energy minimizing, self-evidencing Markov blankets, all living in Markov blankets of a different scale in institutions, in theologies, in their ideologies, and um, you know, with ethnic bounds and and all that. So how does that unfold? And how do you get the right kinds of ecosystems that have this joint free energy minimizing behaviors that does not um, incur upon or require certain Markov blankets to be vitiated or uh, destroyed? You know, so what, what we're talking about now is a physics of an ecology that has sustainability at its heart or at its core. Because the whole point of the free energy principle, it's a description of systems that have an attracting set and how they sustain themselves within that attracting set. 
So I would imagine that the free energy principle will, will be useful and indeed pursuing this with colleagues at um, versus AI. Um, um, uh, so my colleagues in industry, um, this this is one application of the free energy principle in the service of, um, in you know, underwriting in a principled way the aspirations of all right-minded people engaged in designing the next version of the world, the World Wide Web, or. Uh, artificial intelligence or information services um, that speak not to growth, but speak to sustainability. The, you know, a biomimetic take on sustainable ecosystems, but in this instance, ecosystems of intelligence. So that was a bit hand wavy, but it's you know, it really is a fascinating game when you start to talk to people who are actually in charge of engineering. Uh, the next, the next web. Uh, there, which, there really uh, is so much potential. Um, there's something I wanted to ask, and I forgot about it earlier, but I was thinking about Markov blankets and how they, they play this role um, to sort of just, just differentiate between, let's say, it, it can sort of play a role between differentiating between a self and an other, in a sense. Uh, does it have any role or impact when it comes to free will? How do we incorporate these ideas together? Well, there's two ideas there. Um, so, the self versus others. Can we check the sound there? Is, your sound, is my sound good on your side? My sound is good on this side. Your sound is good on my side. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> continue. So my sound. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. So, I think you've got two key ideas. Um, to table that question. Um, so that's the self versus other. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what was the second part of the question? Uh, sorry, I'm just having an issue with your audio. Um, okay, are you okay? Are you okay? No, no, sorry, I was having an issue with your audio. <laughs> I couldn't hear you for a moment. <laughs> It's, it's back. It's back. It's back. Sorry, what did you do? I was just having, I forgot what the second part of the question was. And then the self versus other. And then you ask your question. Okay, so what I, what I meant was when you think of Markov blankets, they can indirectly play a role in differentiating between a self and an other. How is this possible? Is this a trait of the free energy principle and the mark of blanket? And what role does this have when it comes to free Right, yes, sir. thank you. Um, so the self-purpose of the argument is very important, um, irrespective of the issue. And, um, that's what we did, what we haven't covered in any of our conversations is the view of people in neurodevelopment. Um, so you're thinking about early development and the self-evidence thing of a newborn child as to engage in the work out behind the world that isn't existing. And of course, the first thing that things that we need to um, um, recognize where not one is that mother is not part of itself. You know, from the oceanic slate of being in the Freudian sense. And, you know, 
I think that sort of brings me to something I wanted to ask you from the very beginning. With the free energy principle in mind, what do you call is the meaning or purpose of life? <laughs> uh, well, as a physicist, uh, that doesn't really have too much of a. Um, uh, that question has no meaning. Uh, so, so from the point of view of physicists observing the universe that was comprised of things, what we'll look the free energy principle is saying is that if this universe is um, settling onto an attracting set, technically a pullback attractor, then it must be the case that it is, um, um, on average, maximizing the energy of being on, in these attracting characteristic states. It's just like a ball rolling to the bottom of a bowl. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, one way of reading that rolling to the bottom of the bowl, that um, convergence to um, the, um, the attractive set um, is in terms of a minimization of thermodynamic free energy. The special thing that's brought to the table by the free energy principle is the insertion of a Markov blanket. Now, you can read the minimization of thermodynamic free energy in terms of a minimization of certain beliefs, inference, where the beliefs are held by internal states but they are about external states. So this is important, and I, I, I phrase it like that because uh, of your focus on the meaning. So mm -hmm. you know, this, the energy principle gives you a, um, what people like Ramster Coster and Maxwell Ramster would call a basic mechanics, which is exactly the same as physical mechanics, exactly the same as physical mechanics, exactly the same as quantum mechanics. The only difference, is that you've got a Barkov blanket and a partition inside and the outside. So in this and only this situation, can you talk about beliefs having been about something else? Because there is no something else unless you have the Barkov blanket. Mm -hmm. You can't get meaningful information in statistical mechanics. It's just the probability of being in the state. Whereas in the Gretchen principle, it actually acquires meaning now. So this particular physical state has a meaning in relation it represents, it is explaining, it's a hypothesis about, it is a model of this external state about something else, this illusion, illusion of what might be out there. Um, so I think that um, the meaning of life, it has, uh, uh, if there is life in the sense of there being a market, there is an urgent meaning, and that meaning is found in the internal dynamics of life and its meaning uh, is established in a relation sense in this instance uh, the um, the relation um, um, of the internal sense making um, the measurement if you're a quantum physicist of 
whatever is causing the observations and the sensations that you are uh, using to do your measurement. So mm -hmm. this is a quantitative um, uh, levy and, and, and yes. quantum information theory, which I'm completely subscribed to. Um, so that would be one way of doing it. I think a slightly more um, obviously, uh, popular answer to the question would be, well, what's the what's meaning in my life, uh, where I am one of these peculiar systems um, that has this capacity for agency in the sense that I have very precise dynamics and that I um, have the ability to model the consequences of my action. In this very particular case where um, I can now infer what I am going to do in the future, there is something called expected reality that gets everything. So you can you can compute the probability of a particular narrative action path, uh, trajectory into the future as um, basically a, um, a, a softmax uh, function of something called expected free energy. So the, the path into the future that has the lowest expected free energy is the most likely path that I will, that I will follow. And that will select free will. I will select the path that has the lowest expected free energy. Um, what does that mean? Expected free energy, um, in the same way that you can express log evidence as equal to accuracy minus complexity, you can express the expected free energy as the expected information gain minus the expected cost, where the cost is a surprise, the negative self evidence that scores the a, um, uh, a, characteristic state. So if you're in a very uncharacteristic state, very cold, very poor, dead, dissipating, um, then uh, that would be very surprising, highly costly. So you've now got two, if you like, affordances or imperatives or plans that you will select, um, which is um, uh, which is why what I am reading uh, the meaning of life to be, you know, what is my life meaning? What is its purpose? What is my purpose? Well, it is the um, it is the, uh, the imperatives that underlie the things I choose to do. What do I choose to do? I choose those things that minimize my expected free energy. What does that mean? It means I will try to choose those things to maximize the expected information gain while minimizing the expected cost. Mm -hmm. The expected information gain is just curiosity. So the meaning of life for me, assuming that I'm avoiding all those costly states of being, is like, you know, myself in danger or go out very much get into trouble with my wife um, then the, the majority of I mean is the curiosity it's, mm. it's, it's basically um, being a scientist yeah uh, the energy principle is a person I think, I think that's a that's a beautiful way to put it Cole um, there's there's so many things I want to ask you about but something I often love to ask my guess is and I think it's because this gives us an idea of how you were crafted as a thinker and how you really developed as a thinker over time. If you had to give us a Mount Rushmore of your favorite philosophers or scientists, who comes to mind instantly? Who are these people who really guided your thoughts growing up and made you the man you are today? Because I'm pretty sure when people look at your work today, you, from time on, when time moves on, we're gonna be talking about you, I have a feeling, the same way we talk about some of the greats. And I think it would be great to know who inspires Carl Friston? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, a that's, 
<laughs> always a tricky question to ask that one. And one, one reason it's tricky is my my hero my hero is Sherlock Holmes, but Sherlock Holmes is not is not a real person. Look, that counts because he's he's my hero too. I think it, I think that's a great option. <laughs> Uh, but no, what, what I think sort of the two people um, um, when I read or reference with with warm feelings and a tinge of excitement, um, especially when I find their quotes um, uh, are um, Helmholtz and Feynman, um, Herman von Helmholtz and, and Richard Feynman. Feynman. Um, I, look, the Helmholtz reference, that makes sense. I mean, when you think of unconscious inference and all your work, makes a lot of sense. What about these guys really get you going? Well, very much um, what probably gets you going about people like Mark Soames and possibly me. Um, I mean, he was a clear polymath. I mean, you mm. know, if you just think about every move you make, or certainly every move I make in my little world, um, in trying to naturalize psychology and psychopathology and, and um, you know, more generally sort of, you know, um, what makes us tick and... Um, you come across some foundational idea or um, principle or decomposition that he's brought to the table. So you've mentioned the notion of unconscious inference. I mean, that's just basically uh, the Bayesian brain, uh, as beautifully articulated by um, Peter Diane and Jeffrey Hinton's Helmholtz machine in the, in the, um, I think it was the, the, the early 90s. Um, so that's certainly one thing, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, you, know, you you look at his work uh, you know uh, in perception generally you know he he had all the one aspect of illusion uh, illusionist thinking <laughs> at least <laughs> down to fine art uh, and anything that was worth saying you know, you know at some point he would have said it but more than that of course you know um, you know the Helmholtz notion of um, free energy and the contribution to thermodynamics is also pretty central to what we're talking. Well, I'm the kinds of things I talk about. Interestingly, right down to um, something called the Helmholtz decomposition, which I suspect you probably won't know about if you're more interested in computational psychiatry. So this is a this is um, an expression of the fundamental um, theorem of. Um, um, what is it? Vector calculus? No, variation. I can't remember my apologies. Anyway, uh, the Helmholtz decomposition just means that what you can do is describe any dynamics in terms of two effectively orthogonal parts. Mm -hmm. One part is dissipative and it climbs hills or climbs down hills, like the ball rolling down the hill. Um, the, this is the thing that generates energy. It's a thing that does Bayesian belief updating in an information theoretical free energy principle uh, context. Um, uh, and the other part is called the conservative part, also known as solenoidal flow. Mm -hmm. And this part, if you like, circulates upon isocontours of potentials or probability distributions. So this is, if you like, uh, can be read in many, many different ways. If you're an engineer, um, it's a decomposition of um, procedures that you would use to assimilate data or estimate um, unobservable states, do inference as an engineer would using, say, a Kalman filter. And you would have a prediction. So given my beliefs about states, the one I have a prior prediction about what I'm going to sample next. Uh, and that would be the conservative solenoidal part. And then you would have your update, which is basically a prediction error weighted by its precision, which changes my prediction, my prior belief. Um, 
And that's the, if you like, the uh, the dissipative part. That's my engagement in the world. That's that was that's what takes energy and does the belief updating. But that is written down mathematically very beautifully by the Helmholtz decomposition. And what it tells you is that if you've got this, um, if um, by appeal to the Helmholtz decomposition, you've got this solenoidal flow, then you are necessarily uh, breaking something called detailed balance of the kind that you see in open systems and non-equilibrium systems. So there's a direct mathematical mapping between the Helmholtz decomposition mm-hmm. and the class of systems that physicists use uh, and study, which largely in the past few centuries has been sort of um, um, equ- uh, systems, closed systems at equilibrium. In this century, it's now all about non-equilibrium systems. And that non-equilibrium uh, aspect is just due to the conservative part of the Helmholtz decomposition. Also, it is exactly the thing that makes us lifelike. It's what equips us with life cycles, with biorhythms, with oscillations in the brain at every scale, from gamma oscillations in uh, our favorite um, hippocampal uh, dendrite through to um, your, our beating heart and respiration, through to our sleep-wake diurnal cycles, through to our life cycles. Through to the orbit of the you know, of the heavenly bodies, all of these—that's well, not quite a biological uh, aspect, but um, uh, certainly for for biological systems that that break detailed bounds and have this particular kind of itinerancy, while still um, maintaining their integrity, a la free energy principle. Um, then you've got a description of biotic self-organization that foregrounds oscillations and rhythms and recurrences returning to the states I was once in, which of course is you know, part of this sort of keeping yourself within the characteristic states. So I, I got on a little bit there uh, about Helmholtz. That's fine. You can, t- you can see why you're such a fan of Helmholtz. I mean, it's clear. The, <laughs> you can see the joy in your face when you're talking about this. And it's very fascinating work as well. So it makes sense why this really gets you going. And Feynman, what about Feynman really? Because Feynman, I'm a huge fan of Feynman's work. Um, sometimes even for fun, I end up watching Feynman lectures just, just yeah. to keep me calm at night. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's the one, yes, it's the one science entertainment that, that, that I can enjoy that my wife watches as well. <laughs> my wife is a nurse and not into, into the yeah. physics. Uh, um, um. But yeah, no, he's he's a very alluring personality. Um, but you, if you didn't know this, um, it's possibly worthwhile just saying out loud. I mean, the, the variational free energy was his invention. Um, so he was trying to. Um, well, one reading of the history is that it was his invention. You could have good arguments with um, Russian mathematicians that can get at compression and. Um, free energy minimization from the point of view of algorithmic complexity via things like uh, soft uh, induction and the like. Um, and certainly there is a, a school of thought that really celebrates that sort of uh, compression view of um, um, that is described by uh, free energy minimization. But the Feynman view is, is much more, um, more closer to my uh, academic training and, and, and um, uh, inheritance. Um, so uh, what he was trying to do was to solve exactly the impossible marginalization problem that people would try to solve if they wanted to engage in exact base and inferencing, exact sense making, the exact statistics to actually get a grip 
of the um, the the very best explanation of this metaphysical world that of course doesn't exist. Um, but that's intractable in the same sense that he couldn't possibly integrate over all the paths a small particle, say an electron would take in quantum electrodynamics. Um, he couldn't possibly um, normalize that probability distribution by integrating all the, all the universe of, you know, of, um, of paths uh, you know, a, an electron could take. So what he did was to dissolve that problem by converting this inference marginalization integration problem into an optimization problem. And he did it by creating this band on the quantity he wanted to optimize, namely the margin, the log marginal likelihood, which is the variation of free energy. Mm -hmm. So that's that that the you know, all of the free energy principle owes a you know, uh, um, mm -hmm. its greatest debt. I think well, no, that's not quite fair on Helmholtz and everybody else <laughs> right through from Kant through to uh, um, and Bayes um, all the way through. Everybody, yeah, rich, rich, every, yeah, there's so many people you couldn't mention, but anyway, certainly from a technical point of view, um, that, that you know, that 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 pathological formulation is so beautiful, um, uh, and it, you know, it is leveraged directly, certainly in my personal work and the way that I would formalize the free energy principle. It's not the only way to, to you know, you could read the free energy principle as a as dual to James's maximum entropy principle, uh, but in the you know, when read or writ as a uh, you know in its pathological form, uh, it, that is really a homage to to Feynman's original conceptions. But as you say, he's such a delightful person to watch as well. Yes. And unlike me, he was a committed smoker, so I, I like that. <laughs> yes, well. you you love your cigars. I know that. <laughs> the uh, I I often think about that video of Feynman, um, where he's talking about a red flower. I think it was, and and he says his friend. His artist friend looks at this looks at this flower and then tells him, "You as a scientist, you're obviously going to break this down and ruin it." And he's like, "No, no, no! It's actually because I'm a scientist. I'm going to look at the cells beneath the flowers. I'm going to look at every single flow of each atom. He's going to look at every single aspect of this flower in so much greater detail that it only increases in its its complexity and beauty. And to him, the flower is far more beautiful because of this. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. And I think that's something that." You guys have in common, yeah, and with you apparently, with you, <laughs> you're not ready, right? It's beautiful because Feynman has that perfect way of blending the science with the art, and that brings me to this question. I wanted to ask you: When are you going to make or write a book? Because your work is so complex uh, to a point where most people really don't know how to approach it when it comes to whether it's a neuroscientist psychologist, physicist, if they don't understand the work, they're going to find it very difficult. Have you ever thought of writing a book that is a bit more for the layman out there? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, um, no, I, I'm notoriously bad at writing um, <laughs> accessible um, prose of the kind I think would be required for mm. uh, for a book. Um, so I'm probably not going to. Uh, what I've found tends to work best um, is to um, have the next generation of people who are much more fluent, usually either um, because they're sort of in a, uh, a person-facing kind of uh, um, science like psychology or medicine, uh, mm -hmm. um, or they've had a philosophical training. 
So I find these these people are much better than I am at articulating in prose, in narrative form, uh, the ideas. So they can write the books. Uh, <laughs> I'll just sit back and buy. I did try once. Uh, um, so funny. A gentleman called um, Bob Pryor, Robert Pryor, MIT Press, who... Um, has been uh, asking me for at least three decades uh, when I'm going to write the Free Energy Principle book. Mm. And he thinks he's got precedence because his surname is Pryor. Uh. So, so he, he thinks any book that appeals to the page, <laughs> especially the Free Energy Principle, has to be commissioned by him. And he was absolutely right. But uh, the problem is the only stuff I can write is so uh, tortuous. And I have to say that, you know, as with the free energy principle itself, with its emphasis on complexity minimization, namely providing a parsimonious explanation, the free energy principle becomes simpler and simpler mm-hmm. the longer it marinates, certainly in my head. Um, so I, you know, I've taken now, every year now, I write a paper um, you know, describing how a simpler version and a simpler version, that process will go on. At some point, it may be sufficiently simple to, to be attractive to Bob Pryor or any <laughs> other editor uh, who invites me or asks me the question that you've just been asking. My suspicion is uh, I will probably be retired or die before <laughs> before that point arrives. So, um, you know, but there are some wonderful um, uh, uh, renditions of the free energy uh, pro and con, um, but certainly uh, most recently the Active Inference book by Thomas yes. Parr and Giovanna Pizzullo. Uh, you know, I actually say it there that, that, that you know, that, I was allowed to write the forward, but nothing else. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's okay. I was just about to ask you what are some of the reading recommendations. I think that's definitely one. That's on top. That's actually a book that I want to read desperately, um, and I cannot wait. If you had to recommend us any other books, what type of books uh, would you recommend to either increase our knowledge with regards to the free energy principle or active inference in general, or just books that you find? help a scientist, philosopher uh, in general to grow in this field? Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to give you a very good answer to that. There's a, there's a reason for that. There are two reasons. Um, one, I don't have time to read books. Um, as, when you get to my age, um, you, 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 you tend to be, you get asked to write blurb for books. Uh, so I have to speed read certain chapters of books, but I don't actually have time in my um, working life to read books. I can only review papers and, and scientific proposals. That's even working seven days a week. Any papers that come to mind? Oh, there are lots of papers. Yeah, but I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you <laughs> what, they, what they are because the, the people I don't mention will be very, very upset. Um, <laughs> so I'm. I'm not very good at, at sort of um, reading books nor recommending books. So what I'm going to do is is, is um, what my, but my father is. So he sometimes sends me books to read, which which he thinks are good for me. So I'm just going to mention the last one that I read, literally a couple of weeks ago, which is Helgoland yes, by Carlo Rovelli. I, I really like that. Um, so that would I would certainly re- recommend that. And I think that had Carlo written, written that um, last year, as opposed to, I think, 2014, there would have been more emphasis because the free energy principle is just that, you know, that viewpoint, I think, articulated slightly more in a classical setting, in particular the pathological formulation of Richard Feynman. Um, so I really enjoyed that. But otherwise, um, 
if people are genuinely interested, there are lots of wonderful papers, usually by philosophers, usually by, again, people like Andy Clark and Jakob Howe and, and, and uh, Maxwell Ramstead, um, uh, you know, when he's wearing his, um, his, his philosophy hat. Um, but there are also lots of really wonderful other... But you just go to a repository. So mm. Baron Lynch has got a nice repository in GitHub of his favourite FEP papers. There's something called the Active Inference Institute run by Daniel Friedman uh, that is dedicated to trying to organise the material in a didactic or pedagogical uh, way. They're actually writing now, I think, another Active Inference book, which is an explainer for Thomas's and Giovanni's active inference book. So if you're interested, I think you go to the people who actually know how to teach and, uh, and, and, and articulate these ideas. It's funny because one of the last people, well, this was actually a year ago now that I think about it, who talks about hierarchical Bayesian brains and active inference, it was Lisa Feldman. Oh, yes. 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 And, and one of the books, yes, exactly. And the book she recommended was Halkaland. And this was just when the book came out. So it's funny that you both basically talk around the same topic and recommend the same book. So it clearly is an impactful book in general. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's also written some very influential stuff in the emotional sphere and, and has now... Um, uh, you know, so quite, quite quite a key player in the active inference, but certainly the emotional inference and interceptive yeah. inference field, along with Anil Seth and, and, and yes. colleagues. Uh, yeah. uh, just to close off, Carl, um, any theories of consciousness, the brain, that you feel sort of go against the free energy principle? <laughs> Anything that you know stands out that counter-argues this principle in a way that does sort of get you get your shield up? <laughs> um, no, I'm afraid not. But, but I think that probably reflects the fact that I don't have a philosophical training, so I don't. You know, I'm not used to adversarial progression, uh, adversarial argumentative approaches. Um, no, I, I don't. You, you know, the, the whole point of the free energy principle is it has to explain everything, uh, or, or it's, it explains nothing. Um, so, if there is a viable theory of consciousness out there, there has to be some way of, if you like, reframing it or. Um, substantiating that right theory uh, by naturalizing it using the free energy principle. Remember, the free energy principle can never be wrong, so it doesn't need to defend itself. It's just a method or a tool, very much like Hamilton's principle of least, least action. I mean, inherently unfalsifiable. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, just I'd like to say thank you so much for all your work. I clearly supported in the fact that I, I quoted you a couple of times, referenced you numerous times. Um, so to me, it is replicable. It is work that uh, a lot of us are using out there. So from my side, I just want to say thank you so much, Carl. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute honor to actually chat to you. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, so have I. You, you've asked some really excellent questions. <laughs> you've kept me on my toes, but also kept me smiling. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.